Hi, everybody. I am John Allen, and this is Last Week in the Church. On today's menu, we've got criminal justice in the Vatican, a new thriller captures the real cost of scandal, the Vatican walks back an implied threat, what if Napoleon had refused to go to Elba, and finally, a most improbable papal trip. All that is waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. All right, we begin today with criminal justice in the Vatican. Now, I suppose it's a surprise to many people to know that there even is a criminal justice system in the Vatican, but yes, the Vatican city-state, which is this 108-acre island of life in ecclesial Rome, has legal jurisdiction over its citizens, which means the few hundred people who actually physically reside in the Vatican, uh, as well as other Vatican employees who live outside but nevertheless have citizenship, uh, papal ambassadors and other diplomatic personnel around the world, and so on. Uh, And it's got a three-tier legal system. So there is an initial court, a tribunal, There is an appeals court, uh, and finally, there is sort of the Vatican's Supreme Court. Now, for a long time, this legal system really didn't do very much. Uh, But under Pope Francis, it has become quite active, prosecuting in particular financial crimes. Uh, So, uh, recently, it prosecuted the former president of the foundation, that govern Bambino Gesù, that's a papally sponsored pediatric hospital here in Rome, quite famous. Uh, It prosecuted uh, Angelo Caloia, the former president of the Vatican Bank for an alleged fraud fraud scheme and so on. Now, from the outside, I suppose the perception would be that, you know, the, the probability is that the Vatican's criminal justice system is overly lenient right? Because I think most people would think, well, this is, these are Vatican people policing other Vatican people. And so there would be a built-in bias in favor of leniency, right? Um, but the, you know, the, the truth is, among insiders, their perception has been exactly the opposite, that the system is stacked in favor of the prosecution and against the defendant. Because here's the thing, What most people think about the Vatican's criminal justice system is that its purpose is to serve up lower-level scapegoats to insulate higher-level officials, particularly archbishops and cardinals, from any kind of culpability. So the truth of it is, if you are indicted for a crime by the Vatican judicial system, you have a better chance of winning the lottery than you do of being acquitted. Generally speaking, they only indict people when they are absolutely confident that they're going to convict them. Uh, So in every recent Vatican trial, whoever has been indicted eventually ends up being convicted. Now, what that has led to is a perception among insiders that the system is rigged, basically speaking, uh, that defendants have no possibility of success at trial whatsoever. Uh, And so this week, Pope Francis introduced a series of reforms uh, ostensibly intended to bolster the rights of defendants. So, uh, for instance, uh, he introduced the possibility of time off from a sentence for good behavior. Uh, He introduced the possibility of, as opposed to jail time, uh, if a particular person who's been convicted of a crime proposes a program of community service, 
that that could be, and if the court accepts it, that could be an alternative uh, to doing time in jail. Now, that, of course, all applies once you've been convicted. Probably the most important procedural reform that the Pope introduced uh, was to what are called uh, by the Vatican trials in contumacy. Uh, the Italian word there is contumacia, and basically it's when the defendant refuses to cooperate. Under the old rules, uh, if a defendant refused to cooperate with the Vatican trial, then a judgment would be based purely on the evidence that the prosecution presented. Now, under the new rules decreed by Pope Francis, that defendant is allowed to be represented by a lawyer. That lawyer can still make a case. Uh, however, it is short of what many people would consider a full reform because there still are elements of the Vatican's criminal justice system that would really not meet contemporary standards of due process. I mean, for instance, a, in a preliminary investigation, basically, you know, if I can use an American analogy, while the police consider you a suspect, but before you've actually been indicted, uh, you can be interrogated without a lawyer present. There is no right in the Vatican system to have a lawyer present at every stage of the investigation. So you can be interrogated without a lawyer, uh, and whatever you say can still be used against you at trial. Many people would say that's probably not consistent with you know, modern standards of what's considered fair. But here's the real problem. The real problem isn't that the system is stacked in favor of the prosecution. The real problem is that people who have been around the Vatican a long time think these trials are intended to, to deliver up a lower level figure who's going to take all the blame while higher level people are insulated from any kind of responsibility. I mean. The, 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 the trial, the former president of the Foundation for Bambino Gesù is emblematic in this regard. Giuseppe Profitti, who, uh, who was the president of that board, was convicted for uh, financial uh, irregularities because he spent a lot of money from the foundation to remodel the apartment of Italian Cardinal Tarsisio Bertone, who was the Secretary of State under Benedict XVI. The thing is, Bertone, Bertone, who was the beneficiary of this alleged criminal scheme, not only was never indicted, he was never even called as a witness. Uh, so Perfitti goes down, Bertone gets off scot-free. So if you want real reform in the Vatican's criminal justice system, the only thing most people would consider real reform is if a senior figure, a cardinal, an archbishop, someone perceived as close to the pope, is in the dock is indicted, prosecuted, and convicted. Uh, until that happens, the kinds of reforms that we're talking about that we saw this week, uh, however important they may be on the merits, will likely be perceived by most people as a kind of window dressing that doesn't get to the root of the real problem. Uh, all right, second story this week. A new thriller captures the cost of scandal. So, uh, a new book has come out, it's a novel, uh, by an author by the name of Pietro Calicetti, who is considered kind of the John Grisham of Italy. He's a former corporate lawyer from Milan. He knows the financial world inside and out. And he has gone on to write a lot of thrillers about financial crime. 
His most recent is about the Vatican. It's called L'Opzione di Dio, the option for God. Uh, and it's a reference to the famous Pascal's wager, the philosopher Pascal, who said that if you're not really sure whether God exists or not, the smart bet is on that he does. Because if you win, you get eternal life. If you lose, well, there's nothing anyway, so what does it matter? Uh, and this novel begins with a, a terrorist attack by ISIS on the Vatican, uh, which happens to coincide with the imminent death of a pope. And so there is a battle for the conclave that unfolds. There are two main contenders. They each begin trying to find dirt on the other. And it turns out there are skeletons in the closet of both guys. Now, I don't want to give too much away here in terms of the plot because most literary critics feel that like John Grisham novels, this novel is destined to become a major feature film someday. And I don't want to spoil it for you when you're streaming it on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, the, whatever it is. Uh, but let me just say that in the end, all of these different plot threads are connected and it turns out that pretty much everybody is dirty. Now, here's the thing. This novel, which is written by a smart, sophisticated uh, Italian professional, speaks to the perceptions that, that virtually every smart, sophisticated Italian professional uh, that I know has of the Catholic Church, which is that at the senior levels of the Vatican anyway, it's all dirty, it's all corrupt, it has nothing to do with God, and it has nothing to do with the gospel. Now, that may, that, that may well be a distorted and unfair perception, but I am telling you that on the back of all of the scandals we have seen in recent years, and by the way, this novel, they're not making things up. I mean, Calicetti is picking up on real things that have happened, uh, such as the Bambino Gesù case, the London property deal that is, that is still in the Vatican's justice system right now, involving the Secretary of State allegedly illegally trying to buy a piece of property in London, a former Herod's warehouse that they wanted to convert into luxury apartments and so on. The, the cost of all of those scandals is that it produces an impression of the church as corrupt, as interested only in money, and who in the world is going to give their life to an institution like that? That's the thing. Like, we can measure the cost of scandal in dollars, the $3.2 billion that have been paid out in the United States to sell sex abuse lawsuits. We can look at it in terms of lost human potential. All of those people who could have done great work for the church, but who were engulfed in scandal and therefore taken off the field. But the real cost is the price that is paid in moral authority. Uh, and this novel captures it perfectly. I mean, basically speaking, nobody who has the view of the Vatican that is captured in this novel is going to take it seriously as a morally upright institution trying to do good in the world to which they want to devote their lives. Um, and I personally think this novel ought to be required reading for everyone in senior positions in the Vatican because what it does is explain why reform isn't simply desirable from an internal point of view, but it is essential 
from the point of view of evangelization. If, if the Catholic Church hopes to evangelize the world, it first has to be perceived as a morally credible institution. This novel explains to us that right now we aren't. All right, third story uh, in the doc this week, the Vatican walks back an implied threat. So from the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, Pope Francis and his Vatican team have been stern, strong, forceful, vocal advocates of taking seriously the prescriptions of public health authorities. Pope Francis has defended the various restrictions that have been been imposed by governments on the basis of advice from health experts, including in some cases, the suspension of public mass in the Catholic Church. Uh, More recently, he signed off on a document uh, from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that told people that getting the COVID vaccine is not only an option that is okay, but it is actually a moral duty. Uh, He has advocated in every possible way for complying with the advice that is being given by scientific experts. And so it came as no surprise earlier this week when the Vatican, uh, and specifically one of the congregations in the Vatican, reiterated, that is, published anew, a 2011 decree which said that in the case of a public health emergency, Vatican personnel who refused to take responsible steps in order to adjust to that emergency could lose their jobs. Now, when the Vatican put that out, it was widely taken as a threat that if Vatican employees don't want to get the coronavirus vaccine, they could be fired. That was reported widely around the world. Now, in response to that, the government of the Vatican City State, led by Italian Cardinal Giuseppe Bertello, put out a statement yesterday, uh, that is Thursday, saying, okay, 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 look, we're not actually interested in firing people, uh, that if somebody refuses to take the vaccine, we want to try to find alternative solutions, meaning like other jobs they could do that don't put them into contact with the public, uh, that this is not intended to be punitive, but this is intended to strike the right balance between individual freedom and also protecting the welfare of the community. So they were trying to walk back this implied threat of firing if you don't get the shot. However, at the end of the day, the thing of it is that 2011 decree still is on the books. I mean, nobody has rescinded it. Uh, What seems clear, okay, uh, is that what the Vatican is trying to say uh, is that, look, it is up to you whether or not to get the shot. But if you decide not to get the shot, that's no guarantee that you are still going to be working for us. And if you are working for us, that's no guarantee you are going to be able to continue doing the same job you had before. We might put you into another position, which you would perceive as maybe less desirable, less fun, less challenging, whatever. Uh, And what this really comes down to, I think, uh, is that what the Vatican is trying to say uh, is that the era in which being Catholic and like defying the consensus of modern science were compatible, 
That's all over. Uh, and today, uh, if you want to be a faithful Catholic, certainly if you want to be in the employee of the Vatican, then you need to act on the recommendations of kind of the scientific consensus of the world. Uh, that was at the heart of the Pope's uh, famous encyclical Laudato Si on the environment, in which he said, we've got to take seriously the scientific consensus that global warming is a real thing. Uh, and it's also uh, at the heart of his position on the coronavirus pandemic. So while they may not actually technically want to fire anybody, they clearly are throwing down a gauntlet saying that if you refuse this vaccine, maybe you'll still have a job, but you may not like the job that you end up having. All right, fourth, what if Napoleon refused to go to Elba? You remember the famous story, you know, uh, after the uh, Napoleonic Wars, when Napoleon was arrested, he was sent in exile to Elba. Uh, and he accepted that exile and used that time to kind of marshal his forces to, to stage some kind of return. Well, there's a similar situation playing out in the Catholic Church right now. A guy by the name of Enzo Bianchi, who is the founder of the famed monastic community of Bose. It is probably the most famous most celebrated ecumenical operation in the Catholic Church. Bianchi himself is a Catholic layman, but he founded, with a passion for monastic life, he founded this community, not just for Catholics, but for followers of any Christian tradition who share his passion for monasticism. And over the years, it has become kind of the emblematic example of how the things that unite the divided Christian family are far more important than the things that divide them. And Bianchi has become kind of a hero uh, in the ecumenical movement. Unfortunately, a couple of years ago, the Vatican launched a, a, an investigation uh, of the community of Bose and found that Bianchi was responsible for what you can only call abuses of authority. <clears throat> that is, he had abused his position, he had uh, acted in a kind of arbitrary fashion in a number of cases, and so they ordered him to leave. Now, uh, Bianchi basically balked, said no, remain in the community. A few days ago, the Vatican announced that a deal had been struck that the community had decided to assign Bianchi one of the properties that the community owned they were going to close down that property to allow Bianchi to move into it. And some of the members of the community who wanted to follow him would be allowed to go with him so he could create his own kind of parallel or independent little community. Uh, and everybody was happy, except that Bianchi has said no. Uh, he's not going to, he said, no, I'm not going to leave. I'm staying where I am. Basically, what Bianchi is doing is calling the Vatican's bluff. What he's saying is, okay, you've issued a couple of orders for me to leave. I'm not leaving. Now what are you going to do? Uh, and frankly, it's not clear what the Vatican might do. What are they going to do? Are they going to send in the Swiss guards? Are they going to send in the gendarmeria to haul him out, kicking and screaming? I don't think they want that visual. Uh, you know, uh, they could threaten to excommunicate him, I suppose. 
But the truth of it is he hasn't committed a doctrinal offense that would classically justify excommunication. I mean, it is disobedience to authority, of course. They could remove him from his position as the lead, but they've already done that. Uh, so what's left? Um, and I think this is a fascinating sort of exercise in what happens when, because the Vatican has always sort of relied on the idea that with faithful Catholics, when they issue orders, those faithful Catholics are going to, um, going to comply, whether they like it or not. Uh, Enzo Bianchi is basically saying, no, I am not going to go quietly into that good night. I am not going to go down without a fight. And the question is, what now? Now, I don't know what is going to happen next, but I guarantee you, this is going to be a fascinating storyline to follow. All right, finally this week, a most improbable papal trip. As of today, we are exactly two weeks away from Pope Francis's scheduled departure for Iraq for his March 5th to the 8th apostolic visit to Iraq. And to tell you how improbable this trip is, two weeks out, ladies and gentlemen, there is still a betting pool here in Rome among Vatican watchers about whether this trip is actually going to happen. And there is a lot of money, I want to tell you, on the side of no, that it's not. I mean, first of all, you have the coronavirus pandemic. Iraq just announced a series of closures, including the closures of all houses of worship until March 7th. There, that is the day before the last day of the Pope's trip. Uh, and this is because there is a second wave of the coronavirus crusting across Iraq. Uh, and it, it, the, the idea is that uh, gatherings of people are tremendously dangerous right now. A papal trip is all about gatherings of people. It's hard to know how you can bring the Pope into a foreign country without inviting people to come out to see him. Uh, and so there's that issue. Uh, there's also the security issue. I mean, a week ago, uh, there was, for the first time in a couple of years, a coordinated series of suicide bombings in Baghdad. More recently, there have been a series of rocket attacks on Erbil and other, con and, and other areas uh, in northern Iraq, where the Pope is also scheduled to visit. Uh, and just yesterday, a senior official in the Iraqi foreign ministry announced that while the Pope is scheduled to visit uh, Ayatollah al-Sistani, the, the most important leader uh, in Shia Islam, uh, that al-Sistani is not going to be signing any documents with the Pope. Uh, one of the main issues, one of the main objectives of this trip was to get al-Sistani to sign on to the Declaration of Human Fraternity that Pope Francis had signed with the Grand Imam of Al-Hazhar, the most important institution in Sunni Islam, uh, during his trip to the United Arab Emirates a couple of years ago. So, I mean, the, to be honest with you, this trip has disaster written all over it. Uh, and yet, by all accounts, Pope Francis remains determined to go. I mean, listen, Journalists on the papal plane have been getting their vaccines to, to be ready to go. Uh, we have a piece up on the Crux site about a priest in Iraq who has been charged with preparing a meeting between youth and the Pope. 
uh, about the preparations that he is making. Everyone involved in this trip is assuming that it is going to happen. And this is because Pope Francis has said repeatedly that come hell or high water, he is going to go. In fact, in a recent interview, the Pope said that if the papal plane can't go to Iraq, he's willing to fly commercial uh, in order to be able to get there. Now imagine that, right? I mean, the Pope with his passport and his COVID test uh, in line at Rome's Fumicino Airport to be able to check in for... Listen, that's not going to happen. If the Pope wants to go, his charter flight will take him there. Uh, But I will say this, that if Pope Francis succeeds in making this trip, two things will be true. First, it will be proof of how committed the pontiff was to this trip uh, and to being present to a Christian population that arguably more than any other in the world has suffered for the faith over the last few years. I mean, bear in mind, we are talking about a country that on the other side of the U.S. invasion in 2003, Christians have been walking around with targets on their back. We're talking in northern Iraq uh, about Christians who were driven from their homes by an ISIS occupation uh, in 2014 and who have been desperately trying to rebuild. I think this is all about the Pope wanting to be present to those folks to give them a badly needed shot in the arm. The other thing that will be true is that this trip will go down in the annals of history as the most improbable papal trip of all time. Because I'm not sure there has ever been a trip where the odds against this trip happening were as high as those facing Pope Francis today. Uh, Now, we are still two weeks out. Anything could happen, but I am telling you, if Pope Francis touches down on Iraqi soil on March 5th, history will be made. Uh, And it will be the kind of history that we will be talking about to our children and our grandchildren for a very, very long time to come. All right, that is our show for this week. A couple of reminders. One, uh, if you are enjoying this program, please give us a like, give us a share. Go on your preferred social media platform and tell people what we're up to here. Go forth and make disciples of all the nations. Uh, Listen, uh, you know, independent and reasonably fair commentary in the Catholic Church, uh, you don't get that very many places. It's a precious commodity. We want to make it available to as many people as possible. Please help us out, okay? Let people know what we're doing here. Help us build our audience. Second, uh, we are still in the middle of our online online fundraising drive on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find full coverage of all the stories we've talked about today on the site. Uh, If you have the opportunity and if you have the means, please help us out a little bit. What we are really looking for are people willing to make a stable monthly commitment for the next year. Uh, It doesn't have to be very much, okay? Maybe just what you'd spend on a couple cups of coffee, streaming a movie from Netflix this month, whatever. Uh, But whatever you can afford. That gives us stability. It gives us the ability to plan. Uh, And if you can do that, we would be extremely grateful. 
Uh, we will be here next Friday, same time, same place. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.